0: I wonder which side of this you're on. You hear a lot about it, certainly, uh, when something crazy is going on, in the wor- on the world. You hear the uh, debate over whether it's character or it's your chemistry. Uh, it's not your character, it's your chemistry. Is a school of thought. It's really emerged, really, since since the turn of the 21st century. This is really the next round of, some will say, of the old nat- uh, nature versus nurture Debate, uh, also known as environment versus heredity. So pick your poison there. One side uh, says behavior is learned. This is the nurture, environment, character side. The other side says behavior is hardwired from birth. Uh, it's all about chemistry or nature or heredity. It's all about your DNA. Now, this issue has, it's tricky. It has, A lot of profound implications for us, especially as Christians. Um, They will say, um, some will say that it it has to do with chemistry, uh, an inferior amount of uh, dopamine in your system, and so the preferred treatment is to change chemistry rather than to build character. Um, uh, It may be a both and, but it's very complicated. The idea that behavioral issues don't stem from a lack of learned self-control tends to, lack in, uh, tends to lessen my responsibility for doing and saying what I ought to. James has a lot to say about this, and he's going to uh, make it the point of a deeper cause on this. Now, I, I want to talk for just a minute about figures of speech, in particular, metaphors. Okay, because James uses lots and lots and lots of metaphors in his writing. Um, um, I am not an, an English expert, um, as some of you probably are. But, but James is uh, going to use, I kind of know what a metaphor is, and uh, he's going to use a lot of those here. Um, it's interesting. Metaphors like, for instance, we sing a song sometimes in church, um, depending on which service you go to. that that calls Jesus the lion and the lamb. Have you heard that? Have you sung that tune? Uh, It's kind of fairly new, uh, but I really like it because it says he's strong like a lion, fighting our battles. But it also says he's the lamb who was slain for us. Uh, and both of those meta- metaphors fit him. In fact, the Bible identifies him, both in the Old Testament and the New Testament, as the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. It, 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 it identifies him in the Old Testament as the lion of the tribe of Judah. But we know that when we meet Jesus in heaven, he's not going to have a mane and, and roar. We know that he's not going to have, you know, woolly, uh, woolly fur all over him, right? These are metaphors, but they help us to understand his nature and what he's like, right? So James is going to use a lot of this stuff. Um, not all of um, uh, not all are as easy to understand, but James is going to spend quite a bit of time here helping us understand in pretty clear terms using uh, some of these word pictures. Um, his style of writing is pretty vivid. It's pretty clear, razor-pointed. And um, he's going to use these, this figurative language carefully to help us better understand. And here's what we need to catch. When James begins to use this kind of speech, it's to convey to us the urgency of getting these lessons. So let's go to three. Um, Steve Blair... I can always count on you, except one day I couldn't count on you because you had something going on in your throat. I appreciate you saying no. Actually, you said, no, I can't do it. Um, <laughs> uh, yeah, yeah, there you go. It, it, uh, forgive me for my responsibility to read is what he said. Okay. Uh, verse 1 through 5 in James 3, would you start us there? Did you catch how many different metaphors are in those five verses? Uh, All kinds of, it's like this, it's like this, it's like this. Now, let's go back to verse 1, and what what James is going to begin is challenging those who teach, okay, um, uh, uh, in in their kind of awesome responsibility. Now, notice here, he's going to say that um, let not many of you become teachers... Okay, saying, don't, don't uh, seek this. This is a spiritual gifting issue. It's uh, it's funny how uh, when we when we do spiritual gift discovery tests, it's not like okay, I want this one and this one, and so I'm going to try to proof text it and make that happen. The gift of teaching is something that the Lord gives you when uh, when you are born again. Uh, if you have that gift, uh, to to use in the body of Christ, but he's going to say, don't be so excited if you have the gift, and if you don't have the gift, don't kind of pursue it, and then he changes his his kind of part of speech, and he says, for we will be judged differently. You catch that? So he includes himself in that group. Now, basically in the first century, the role of leaders and teachers, um, um, was a sober responsibility. Now think about it in this context, okay? Pretty sober responsibility. They had the responsibility to teach the basics of the faith, the fundamentals of the faith. Don't you know, as a guy who knows a lot about faith and whose faith himself had been uh, radically changed by a visit from his older brother after he Resurrected from the dead, don't you know that he's got a lot to think about, a lot to say about faith? So um, the basics of um, the Christian faith, the fundamentals of that, uh, a teacher's is responsible for, especially in the first century. And then, um, unlike a little bit unlike teachers today in the church, uh, the teachers uh, from the New Testament period. Um, had to interpret the Old Testament scriptures from a Christian perspective and do so without the New Testament. How hard would that be? They had some of the New Testament, but it had not been uh, codified, it had not been canonized together. They had letters here and there. Uh, the Gospels weren't circulated till late. Okay, So they had this kind of hard responsibility of teaching the principles of the Christian faith using only the Old Testament, or at least mostly the Old Testament. I think that's kind of an awesome responsibility. Um, now, for us today, okay, for me, as I teach you, I've got not only several versions of the New Testament to draw from, as well as the Old Testament, in my library at home, in my library at school, but I've got commentaries and all that kind of stuff to help me with that okay so i've got all of this help that be can i be really honest with you i've also got the added pressure of the information explosion online social media all this i mean i literally can type in something on my on a Google search on my computer or on my iPad or even on my phone but then I got the crazy responsibility of wading through it to tell you know what what's true and what's really not what's what's spun a particular way or what's told just honestly so it it in some ways our responsibility as teachers is better because we've got the New Testament and all these helps and all this Commentary and, and various things. But in some ways, there's more pressure because there's more information to wade through. So he says here, don't, don't just be um, um, preoccupied. He says, because some of you, uh, let not many of you become teachers because here's what keeps me awake at night. You'll be judged more Strictly, that's pretty scary. Now, Sally taught public school for how long? Thirty-one years. That's a that's amazing. But don't you know that we kind of will judge Sally a little bit if she didn't, if she couldn't add and subtract, or uh, or have really good English or write well. Okay, it's just. If you're a teacher, you're judged differently. We, we kind of know that. But what about the teacher of the faith? Wow, even a heavier responsibility. So, okay, so that's kind of the idea. Now, verse two, take a look at verse two. The meaning here, I think, says we all stumble in many ways. It's a pretty strong word. And again, it's almost metaphorical. Everybody knows kind of what a stumble looks like. By the way, don't, don't follow me in that regard because I can and have tripped over the pattern in the carpet. Okay, so, all right. Uh, we all stumble in many ways, but he kind of has this interesting thing where he says, but if you never stumble in what you say, you are really in control in all other ways. What's he trying to convey there? Do I? Uh, What a big deal it is to be self-controlled or spirit-controlled in my speech. If you can control that, he says you can control about anything. And it's almost a hypothetical statement here because he makes kind of the point here uh, that you're probably, there's probably not anybody that you and I have met that's always in control of their speech. Look at 126. Turn back a page. If anyone thinks himself to be religious and yet does not bridle his tongue but but deceives his own heart, this man's religion is worthless. Come on, James, tell the truth here. Wow. He's not very fearful, is he? Okay, so... He uses bridle the tongue. He uses bridle as a verb. Now in verse 3, he's going to use it as a noun. All right? Um, Sally, did I get that right? Did he use the right part of speech? Okay. Uh, and he's going to employ in verse 3 the idea of a bit and bridle in a horse's mouth. Okay? As controlling a, a, a very um, large animal. Okay? I don't know the answer to this. I'm going to ask. How much does a horse weigh typically? Thousand pounds, up to a ton, maybe. Okay. If it's a Clydesdale, maybe close to a ton. If it's a quarter horse, it might be a thousand pounds. Okay. The point is um, that a bit in bridle uh, put an uncomfortable pressure in the horse's mouth. That literally controls this thousand pound or one ton animal. That's kind of amazing, really, when you think about it. And James is using this metaphor here. Um, it, he kind of makes the point here that the influence exerted is out of proportion to the size employed. Okay? Relatively small, bit and bridle controls the whole horse. It just doesn't control his head. It controls all of it. Okay? That's kind of the point here. Now, you know where he's going to with this because of the context we've set here. And then in verse 4, he uses a picture or a metaphor of a ship's relatively small rudder. Again, uh, the rudder is... uh, The rudder's influence is really disproportionate in size. Okay? Now, I'm going to borrow an illustration here, but you may think of an illustration that also works, another metaphor that you would have. Um, I read a story this week about a 13-year-old girl who went uh, to the doctor's office with her mother. Girls at age 13 are very sensitive and they think a lot about their, their appearance and um, um, it's kind of a big, self-image is kind of a big deal. Uh, she had had a really rapid growth spurt that year. And uh, uh, it seemed like every morsel of food she ate made her get taller. Uh, not, not bigger, just taller. And uh, by the way, I remember a time when I was praying for, Jake was kind of a runt at one time, believe it or not. And I, had a, I was in a promise keeper's group where we prayed for him every Thursday morning to get bigger. He grew like a foot in a year. <laughs> and now he's 6'2, and nobody would want to mess with Jake. But um, uh, he's been picked on at school and all that kind of stuff. Well, anyway, this girl is getting taller and taller. At one point in the exam, the doctor said to her, Your weight is much higher than most girls your age. I hear the groans. As the doctor paused, the daughter looked at her mother just shocked. So, um, dismayed, the doctor would say something to be taken so wrong by the girl. The mother exclaimed, yeah, but that's because she's much taller than most girls her age. Look at her. She's so thin, she almost looks unhealthy. The doctor says, "Uh, you you know, you're right, of course. I was going to say that, but it was too late. For months, this girl suffered from low self-esteem. She was worried about every morsel of food she put in her mouth, and she was stick thin. But somebody in authority had said something that affected her self-esteem. It took her a long time to be um, uh, deprogrammed for that. And the truth is, you and I know this, that what we say can affect others for months or years to come. It can affect relationships for months or years to come. Words count. I think that's one of the underlying principles of of the book of James and certainly of this third chapter. And by the way, this is really hard to teach. Have I said that already? (sighs) So you pray for me as I finish this one. So... So the idea is here. Verse 5. It uses the word. Uh, uh, it uses the idea. The metaphor again. Of a tongue's boast. A tongue's boast. Now what you need to do. Is picture a little bitty small man. Okay. Uh, a small man. Who's who's bragging all the time. Talking about what he can do. Alright. Um, from. A little small guy, okay? It, it, it personifies your tongue as a little man who can't quit bragging. Now, look with me. Somebody turn, if you would, or, uh, to Psalm 73. Would somebody read verse 8 and 9? They saw the of that threatened Interesting how the the tongue is also personified here in the Old Testament Um, and speech, those kinds of things. So um, then it uses, um, finishes out verse five with the metaphor of a fire Um, and the fire. I've got to find my place here. See how great a forest is set aflame by such a small fire. OK, most of you are my age or thereabout. I know Joe remembers this. Do you remember singing Pass It On when you were in high school and college? Remember that, Sally? It starts with, it only takes a spark to get a fire going. Okay. If you don't remember that one, look it up. You can Google it. You can find it. The Ralph Carmichael or somebody wrote it, and it was a great campfire song. Believe it or not, a great campfire song. Um, and that was probably the, the reference to it. You know, some, some cat with long hair and a, and a guitar would, would be leading it, and the rest of us would... would. Did you have long hair? Did you have a guitar? I'm trying to think, trying to think who actually it was. I, I'm not sure. It might have been Ralph Carmichael. It might have been somebody else. But the idea was, it doesn't take much to get a fire going. Now, in Palestine, where, where um, James was living, and, and mostly people to whom he was writing, it's very arid, it's very dry most of the year, and it was, it was a tinderbox. He's seen this. You and I have seen this, dramatically depicted on the news, where literally somebody tosses a cigarette and it burns thousands and thousands and thousands of acres. That's the imagery that James is using here. Uh, It's the idea from a small fire, a big one comes. So it may just be an unguarded word, a poor choice of phrase. And it starts a relational fire. That's kind of the idea. Now, let's go back to James 3. I want us to read together verse 6, 7, and 8. John, you read that for us? James is not holding back, is he? Cindy, can I get you to go to Jeremiah 32, 35? That is not what's on your outline. 3235. I don't know what I was, you know, doing when I wrote 2325, but it's not 2325. 3235. It's gonna give us a, a picture of something that James uses here. The issue is words don't only do external damage, they also do personal internal damage. Now think about that for just a minute. That's a different concept. What I say hurts, can hurt others, but it'll also hurt me, what I say, okay? And he uses uh, the idea that the tongue is set on fire by hell. Now, there's a word used here to de- de- depict hell that is an Old Testament and a New Testament idea. Uh, different words, um, but carrying the same idea. Cindy, read thirty-two thirty-five. I never my mind so I think the word it's it's a compound word, but it's henem. Hinnom, uh-huh. hinnom, That word in the New Testament is translated Gehenna. Okay? And that's the word chosen as hell here at the end of uh, verse six. Okay? And the idea was there was a, a trash dump south of Jerusalem but not too far out of town where they literally took their trash to be burned and it smoldered all the time. The Old Testament reference that, that Cindy read from Jeremiah 32-35 is of a place where idolaters went, and this is gross, just to sacrifice their children to the god Moloch. Same place. Isn't that interesting? They weren't doing as much of that in New Testament days, although in some really pagan cultures they were doing that. But in the Old Testament, it was very commonplace. They would do that as as kind of a good luck charm. Interesting, isn't it? We're doing that in lots of ways today. You're right. So the idea here is Uh, The image is your tongue, the tongue is set on fire by this place. It's, It's the reference to eternal destruction. And that was the best imagery New Testament writers had of this place that was on fire smoldering all the time south of Jerusalem. That was the closest they could come to describing hell. And it says, your tongue, buddy, your words are set on fire by that place, by hell. It's talking more in in an eternal situation here. Okay? So James gets explicit about what he's only implied previously. A tongue can also be self-destructive. I just want to say this to you. If I'm interpreting verse 6 right, James is wanting you to know that what you say has eternal consequences. I don't like what I just said, but I think I'm right. What you say has eternal consequences. Okay, look at verse 7. It talks about the ability to tame an animal. To tame an animal. Cindy, can, I'm, I'm picking on you a lot today. Can I get you to go to Genesis 1, 28? It's, at least it's easy to find. It's, it's the idea that... That God placed us on the planet to have a dominion over the animal kingdom. Okay? All right? 128. God blessed them and said to them, He will increase in number, the earth is subdued, rule over the fish of the sea, and the birds of the air, and over every living creature that moves on the ground. Rule over. In the the, uh, King James, I think it says, have dominion over. In other words, king over, rule over. And literally, you've read about it. You've seen it on YouTube. uh, About every animal in any place has been, we've had the ability to train in some way, exercising dominion. If not uh, being able to train them, we've certainly had the ability to kill animals. in our dominion over them, some for food and for whatever else, okay? There's one exception to it. No man has ever trained a dachshund. (laughs) I've had four. Not trainable. Cute as all get out. I loved every one of them. But you can't train them. You might talk them into going outside to go to the bathroom, but that's about as far as it goes. Kind of like, the cat. like what, Don't there's probably cat people in here. <laughs> okay. <laughs> okay, but watch what you say. Now, so the idea here is, okay, is that the ability to tame an animal is part of the created order of things. And, and James is going to say every animal, it, we've been able to train every animal the exception of dachshunds, although that's, by the way, in the original Greek here, you didn't, you didn't, Um, uh, you know, it's been tamed and it's been tamed by the human race, but no one can tame the tongue. Now, here's, I want to be careful that we don't take uh, verse 8 out of context. If you read it, if you read it only by itself, what would it imply? There's no hope. So don't even try, right? Nobody can tame the tongue, so don't worry about it. That would be out of context. Remember this teacher's responsibility we've got? I've got a responsibility to say, don't take this verse out of context because it's gonna make you think that you're not responsible. That is not the case in the context of all that we've studied and the couple of verses that we'll yet read. Okay? Words hurt. Be careful. Don't get out of control. Let me stop for just a minute. We've got seven or eight minutes left, but I want to stop and make an application here just for a minute. What do you do if the Holy Spirit tells you that your tongue is kind of out of control? Is there hope for you? Now, according to this verse, I think there is. Is there hope? What do I do? Well, I grab my... No, you don't grab your tongue. Here is one little piece of advice that I think works, but it's only one aspect of it, okay? If you find yourself getting in trouble with your mouth, which, by the way, Sally, my mother taught third grade for 33 years. (laughs) She was sweet and tough at the same time, and I would go visit her in her room after I became an adult. She'd walk, she would step out in the hallway to talk to me, and and the kids would get, kind of start murmuring inside, you know, you'd start hearing a little, little roar, Miriam, you know the deal. She'd step back inside, turn the light off and say, do you people have mouth trouble? <laughs> okay. Yeah. She was just tough. And they loved it for some reason, but, okay, so... When you discover you've got mouth trouble, when you discover that your words might be just getting you in trouble, the Holy Spirit is saying to you, buddy, we got to work on what you say. One piece of advice to try using less words for a while. What I've found is the more I talk, the more trouble I get into. And by the way, when I'm I'm in real trouble and I try to talk myself out out of it, I just dig myself a little deeper. If you don't believe me, Rhonda's probably got a t-shirt to attest that, okay? All right. Recognize that maybe I just need to not say anything or at least say less. My grandmother used Life boy? I'm not sure that works though, doesn't it? Okay, it worked on you. All right. Okay, now. Okay, let's go. Cindy, I'm gonna have you go one more time and read verse nine through twelve and we'll finish up. uses still using metaphors, okay? Here. And uh, he uses a couple of pretty pointed ones here. Now, it starts with he starts in verse 9 with this great paradox. The mouth that praises God and curses a man. The mouth that praises God and curses a friend. The mouth that praises God and in the next breath curses some other person. It's just this Incredible paradox that is in context, obviously inappropriate. Our speech should be consistent and it should be consistently praiseworthy, praiseful, consistently upbuilding, not uh, tearing down. Okay, it's kind of the idea here. So, the bottom line is that we can't successfully. In our speech or other ways, live a double life. He's been telling us for the last couple of weeks, you can't say one, you can't say your one thing and then live another way. Here he's saying, your speech can belie what you claim to be. You can't lead a double life. And he goes on then to use this imagery of, of um, a fresh spring and a salt spring in verse 11 and 12. And what I want to do is to take you, if you will, just as we finish up, to Galatians 5, verse 22 and 23. Very familiar to a lot of you. Because I think what it says is, if I'm filled up with the Spirit of Christ, I will be known by the fruit I bear. Conversely, If you're not under the Spirit's control, you'll be known by that fruit as well. A sweet spring versus a not-so-sweet spring. Okay? Are you there, James? Sorry, Galatians 5, 22 and 23? Somebody read those two verses. Who's got them? Thank you, Sally. Kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Against such things there is no law. It's interesting to me that that list of nine fruit end with they begin with love, which by the way, all of them actually pack into the 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 idea of the object of love, but they end That whole list of nine ends with self-control, which is what I think James is talking about here. He's talking about letting the Spirit lead you to a life of self-control, even in the way you talk. We're known by the fruit we bear. Now, I brought a visual aid. That right there. Believe me, you don't want to drink. It's vinegar. Okay, vinegar. And it actually spilled out in my little bag a little bit here and got on some of my other stuff, which now smells like vinegar. I mean, it, it's just vinegar. It's, it's not something, uh, unless you've got an interesting taste buds, you probably don't want to spend a whole lot of time sipping vinegar. I knew you were going to argue with me about that because vinegar is supposed to be good for you. Okay, but still, in terms of taste, you don't want it, right? You don't want it. Okay, contrast it with, and it's kind of almost—it's about the same color in some ways, huh? This is Ed Abel's none better honey. He robs—he robs his bees several times a year, and occasionally he'll bring me a sack and it'll have some of his honey in it. Do you know he's done this since he was eight years old? He used to, Ed Abel used to go door-to-door with his little red wagon selling honey when he was eight years old. Isn't that a wonderful picture? And he's had he's had hives and uh, an extractor and all that ever since then. But here's what I'm going to tell you. This has a completely different taste to it. Do, you, is it. do I have to sell you on that fact? By the way, you can't have any to try it out. Sorry. I only get, I only get a pint every once in a while. Okay. But the truth is, I was dealing with a with a, a young man that I'm discipling a couple of weeks ago, and we get began to pray about. When I am kicked, when I am bumped, what do I want to spill out? What's gonna spill out? Whatever I'm full of. If I'm full of vinegar, what's going to spill out? Vinegar. If I'm full of honey, what's going to spill out? Sweetness. Even in my speech. Now, let me give you a couple of things to think about as we, the idea here is that Sally read, the fruit of the Spirit, what I'm filled up with is all sweetness. Kindness. General, self-control, all those things. Now, a couple of things. In terms of trying to control my tongue, let me give you two principles to live by. When in doubt, don't. When in doubt, don't. You might say to me, well, I can't help it. Yeah, you can. Especially if you're a Christian filled up with the Holy Spirit of Christ You can ask him, Lord, would you just kind of take this for me? And you can spill some vinegar. I'm sorry. You can spill some honey instead of vinegar in that moment. All right. Second idea. In the old days, I would say to you, if you're getting ready to write somebody and let them have it, write the letter and put it in a drawer for a couple of days before you mail it. Nobody mails letters anymore. So, okay. So I'll say it this way. In these days, think twice before you hit send. And you got to know this. Your words on paper, your words in an email or in a letter are a lot stronger than those you even say verbally out loud. Before you send it, ask the Lord about it. This would include social media. Um, it is just the same principle. Before I write it, before I push send, before I push enter, read it several times. Think about it. I want to be a person who is known by sweetness, not vinegar. James gives us a lot of advice here. I'll just ask you as we leave, what are you going to do with this? What are you going to do with it? I know what I'm going to have to do. My guess is you may know what you're going to have to do too.